The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. Hi, everyone. This is Gwendolyn. Welcome to the Visual Workplace this week. This is our weekly radio show where we explore and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, the people, the results, the methods, the strategies of the visual workplace, of workplace visuality, of visual information sharing, of letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system our intelligence into the living landscape of work through visual devices. Why? So we can reap the enormous rewards. They are both bottom line rewards, cultural rewards, and for our own self. Selfishly, for ourself, we enjoy ourselves along the way. Mm -hmm. Workplace visuality. I have been in discussion for the last uh, little bit, last show and this show, about China, and I want to continue that uh, in this show. And I also want to say, by way of reminder, that we have a long journey to take through visual leadership for the executive, but I want to do that in September when people are back from their vacations and where my travel, when my travel schedule uh, calms down a little bit so that I can get a good run on this. Mm-hmm. I, I can do pre-record shows, and I often uh, have to, but I prefer for them to be live uh, so that I'm here talking to you right now as you're listening. It helps me, and, um, and it is more enjoyable for me, to tell you the truth. So, I uh, uh, have a f- just a few announcements, if I may. Um, one is that our training of trainers in Portland is sold out. We are going to be, just by coincidence, doing another one in September but we, uh, but that particular one is going to be on site with a specific company, and also uh, we have some seminars coming up, which we're just kind of finalizing the uh, information on, and we'll get that out to you. I also want to tell you that finally, finally, my Smart Simple Design book, Smart Simple Design Reloaded, is coming out. We just decided on the cover uh, a few days ago. It's very beautiful. It has a beautiful blue circle and then um, a gorgeous background of texture. It says smart, simple design. It's very elegant. I want to thank Ewan Sujuno from Australia, who is our designer, for um, creating this wonderful design. Uh, it really makes a difference, especially if you're writing a book about smart, simple design. You want the cover to be compelling and it is distinctly different from the 1994 uh, book 
both inside and out. So thank you very much. I also uh, want to tell you there's a lot happening right now in terms of the thinking at Visual Thinking. We are in the process of configuring a new business model, one that we hope will give you many more choices about what you want to, uh, from us and what you want from workplace visuality, what you want to learn and how you want to learn it, what you want to learn about what we teach. And I would give you as a construct or a way of imagining this, uh, the image of a wheel, a wheel that has many sections. You know, the spokes, well, the space in between the spokes are sections or slices, but not six of them like six slices of a pie, but 20 of them or 30 or 50. And each of those slices or sections represents uh, one of the components of a visual workplace, a kind of discrete bundle of knowledge and application. So we'll have it around the uh, operator visuality, we'll have it around infrastructure, we'll have it around leadership. There'll be a section of um, three or four modules, or if you will, on-demand webinars related to um, getting started and also getting ready for your implementation in terms of putting an infrastructure in place or the beginnings of one. So we're working on that now and I want to, uh, what do you call it, uh, something like shout out, something like that. I've heard people say shout out to Cindy Linden who joined us about six months ago. She's our executive administrator and she's been a very big influence on this new thinking. Also Horatio Fairburn who came on board in May. He's had uh, a marvelous impact in terms of his technical skills and his ability to anchor a lot of our vision in um, the world of the web, which is very important, the world, the world of, um, uh, of on-demand, the online on-demand. He is joined with Alex Blyer, by Alex Blyer, and together they're putting together a new website and a new uh, delivery platform. We're very, very excited about this. We expect to launch in September... It's a new business model, one that will give you choice and affordable choice, a lot of flexibility and a lot of combining and recombining. And of course, Aurelia Navarro, who's been my editor, we've been working together for 35 years. Um, she's a big part of finding the language and a lot of the conceptual background as well. I want to thank everyone for that. I'm very, very excited about this. So, you know, the purpose is that I've got a lot of rich visuality in my head and I need to get it out of my head and into your hands so you can use it. You can use it to transform your workplace, transform the process, and you'll find, as you probably already have, that when you, change, when you transform the process, you transform yourself in the process. It's just the magic of this new paradigm, this new paradigm that's now been around for going on. We're getting close to 35, 40 years. So I want you to stay tuned for this. It is real. It is coming, and I'm so glad. I also want to shout out, if that's the right word, to our friends in China for helping us in this, Stephen Lee and David Chow, Visual Workplace China, because uh, they are quite intoxicated by this idea of on-demand learning and interactive learning. And um, so they have some contributions to make to widen our thinking. And all of that is turning into something that is very transformative for my company. You know, I've been slugging it out here <laughs> since 19... Oh, what was it? 1983, 84, and then started my own company in 1991. 
And uh, it's been such an exciting ride. So I wanted to let you know it's happening. Something new is coming. Something new is coming and it's, it's good. It's really good. Last week we began China. <laughs> we began China. We began our discussion. And this week I want to bring the conversation around to uh, more to some of the implications of what I saw. I took you on a little travelogue, talked to you about the infrastructure, the incredible massive infrastructure that pretty much happened instantly on the Chinese landscape. Instead of taking two or 300 years to evolve, <clears throat> the technology exists in the world today uh, and the decision was made in the minds and the hearts of the Chinese uh, people and the Chinese government to do it. To um, It's hardly even saying get modern. It's to um, be, become a, a player in the world, uh, in the world, a global player. And it's happened over the last 20 years, which is pretty much instantly. And I talked to you about the infrastructure, the roads, which were filled with Chinese pictograms because they were directions for the Chinese in Chinese about using the highway and all of the cleverness there. And about the dragon column, if you remember, the column that uh, the, the dragon, according to my Chinese friends, permitted to be um, lodged very close to or across its spine in Shanghai. What an interesting mythic story to um, create a counterpoint to this modernization. You know, I came across a book that I got back in 1982. It's called China Under the Four Modernizations. It was um, printed by the Joint Economic Committee in August, August 13th, 1982, Selected Papers for um, Congress, Part 1. And it is this very densely packed 607-page journal of information, which I was reading at the time because, I don't know, I just was. And in fact, you know, when I was in high school, I wrote a paper that was just decades ago that began the repercussions of the cultural revolution on China. Imagine that. When I was in high school, I think my father induced me to do that. He said, write about China. So it's been so interesting, so interesting to find myself there. So today's show, I want to share some of the implications of what I've seen, the meanings, the, if you, if I want to use a really big word, extrapolations, the impressions about larger issues, or at least the issues that are relative to this show. And I think relative to a lot of the thinking of you, the listeners of this show, issues relative to the visual workplace. I have pretty much four themes uh, that have been kind of uh, surfacing over the last um, month since I was in China and since I've been back. And it's how does visuality fit in? Where does visuality come into play? Here are the themes. So the first one is China's economy is booming. Why would visuality appeal to a, a company and an, a country and an economy that already sells everything it makes? The economy is booming both in, uh, domestically and in exports. How could visuality help and where's the motivation for it? When no help is needed, as it were, we're doing fine, thank you very much. What's the fit? 
And the second theme is, what does the West have in common with China in this regard, if anything? And China in common with the West, if anything? Theme number three, how do you motivate a workforce to engage in improvement in a top-down society, if you will, a paternalistic society, a society that has been promoted to us as an obedient society? What part of that is myth? What part of it is real? Is it real? Pardon me. What part of it is real? What part of it is useful? What part of it is confusing? So I've been thinking about that. And what is the trigger point? Who takes the lead in improving what is already going very, very well? What is already happening in China? Who in China cares? If it was a decision that recapitulated the economy 20 years ago, what is the decision that would bring visuality in, or you can think of it as employee empowerment? What, how does that happen? What's the trigger point? So I want to tackle these. <clears throat> it's going to be a conversation, and it's very helpful for me to be able to talk to you about these things, because these are themes that in our own way, we've been covering over the last two or three years since I began this show. But going to China has given me a way of looking at it very, very broadly. And I hope you'll find this interesting. So we're going to go slide into our first break. And when you come back, we'll begin our discussion. I'll see you in a minute. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio 
at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second segment of our show today here at the Visual Workplace. We are in discussion about China, about the kinds of things I observed in China now, and uh, what do they mean? What are the implications? What do they mean in terms of workplace visuality since this is part of our show and this is the show? And what do they mean in terms of moving forward? How does visuality fit in, if at all? And of course, I think it does, but it's a little bit subtle, or at least my brain hasn't kind of settled on the um, the answers to some of the questions I'm going to raise today. So econ- China's economy is booming. Why would visuality, which is an improvement methodology, an improvement strategy, if you will, appeal to a country and an economy that already sells everything it makes? China has its own market and it has also um, invaded the world, as it were with its exports. How could visuality help when no help is needed? What's the fit? Huge factories. So here's the thing. Let's talk about these huge factories. I've seen them. I've been in touch with uh, people in China for the last couple of years. I have impressions. Most of them were um, confirmed when I went to uh, on my visit. Huge factories, these huge factories with two or 3,000, we went into a Volkswagen plant with 30,000 people on the campus. 30,000 people is the size of a town. And these people leave at, uh, in the afternoon. They come back in the morning. They do continuous work. And that's the nature of the traffic at this factory, at this Volkswagen factory right outside of Shanghai. Huge factories. The production approach, if you will, the production system, but in some cases there is no system, but the production approach, the assets of production are brought in whole hog, models of production, if you will. The products were brought in, they're adapted, or they're uh, simply made for a foreign um, export just the way they are and bought somewhat in in China. It's all there. It's an, it's an imported um, production mechanism. But you know what I found out, which was very, very interesting? I found out that the improvement methodologies that have become more current in the West were not exactly imported at the same time. People have the language of improvement, but they don't have the mechanism of improvement. And I found that to be very, very interesting. I found people hungry to learn what improvement was about and certainly what visual improvement is about, what that whole language, that embedded system was about, but I didn't see very much evidence of it. Of course, China is vast and I would need to go to those companies that were purported to be on the edge of the improvement wave. But from what I saw and the conversations I've had with 30 or 40 companies while I was there, I visited five of them, but I had conversations, we had kind of roundtable conversations. The improvement model was not imported. And I found that to be interesting, that improvement, which has become, if not part and parcel, at least has a strong introduction into our organizational thinking, 
that change model, that transformative model, was not uh, evidenced in either the discussions that there that when these um, mechanisms came were adopted from the West or from the uh, outside economy. They were not adopted inside China. And the only reason for that would be they were not seen as part of the program, part of the model. And I I found that to be very, very curious indeed. But then when I thought about it, I realized that China had a lot, has a lot in common with where the West was, if you will, the United States, Europe, about 25, 30 years ago. I mean, in a way, China is exactly where we were in the 1950s and 60s, where the model was make more, sell more, make more, sell more. But what we discovered in the late 1970s, beginning of the 80s, was that volume and unlimited market does not erase the need for improvement. In fact, in order to compete, one needs to improve. This was the new paradigm, a great universal principle that came in when China crashed into the United States about 1979-1980. And we saw something that was different. We saw a model that was based on different principles. It was based on the, impro- the principles of using the local resources and mapping to them so that they really performed and building a market around quality. Building a market around quality. And because quality wasn't a part of our thinking in the United States, we had to move to an improvement model. Well, it turns out that quality was just the doorway to think about something even larger. And that was about improvement and then continuous improvement. Remember our discussions about the war on waste? Many of the companies in the United States and Europe and elsewhere in the world, let's say outside of China, began to explore that modality and find it very, very good, very useful, pertinent, and pretty much universally applicable. It wasn't a narrow introduction. It had very broad implications And our challenge was, senior management saw that, the consultants from Japan came over and began to groom our thinking, senior management in some few companies at the beginning saw that, and then they realized, well, I get it, but how do I motivate my workforce to want it too, to engage in improvement, to engage in creativity, to engage in contribution, and if you will, to engage in visuality, which for me is one of the most powerful ways because it is a thinking paradigm, powerful ways to generate improvement and keep it going and keep building it. It's a language, as you've heard me say many, many times. And with language, we can keep developing it and refining it and getting more precise in our definitions and in our languaging, embedding our system through visual devices. So China is simply where we were. This is a, a way that I'm kind of settling into what did I get out of my trip and what does it mean? How is it useful to me? And how is it useful to the companies that asked me to work with them? They are getting on a bandwagon that we got on pretty recently. 
30 years ago. We're learning and many companies are learning to do it or learning to begin to do it. They get stopped, of course. They hit barriers. But there is now a component in our cultural mind think, our mindset, that says improvement is good. But it wasn't there before. And China is at this point, as far as I can see. The production mechanisms have come in, but the improvement thinking is uh, waiting at the door, not quite invited. There's not yet a, a place at the table. It isn't that China is lagging behind. China is racing ahead and doing it at a speed greater than we were capable of because the paradigm is already built, you see. And they can stand on our shoulders, stand on the shoulders of many, and move forward. And I think that's about what's going to happen. But there are some other factors in the Chinese economy and in the Chinese culture. And that's the kind of the second piece kind of theme. How do you motivate a workforce to engage in improvement and inventiveness in a paternalistic society? And we've kind of made that separation. There is a democratic society. There's a paternalistic society. We don't make the distinction between there's a democratic society and an entrepreneurial society because democracy and the entrepreneurial spirit go very well together. But how do you gauge an employee empowerment In a paternalistic society, that means a top-down society, when the power of empowerment is really lodged in the upper structure, in the upper part of the hierarchy, that this is a hierarchical society. But I wonder, is it? Is China? What part of that is myth? What part of it is real? What part of it is useful? And what part of it is, because it is not true, confuses us? I don't believe we have yet figured out how to make the transition from top-down command and control to an employee involvement um, structure by letting the top-down be the organizing factor. I think that that, if we look at it as top-down command and control versus employee uh, empowerment, we immediately make it almost impossible for us to solve it because it really looks as though something is wrong top-down and something is right, employee empowerment, and therefore we have to give up on employee empowerment or get rid of top-down. I think that's the wrong construct. That is a bit of a tangent. I don't want to go down today. I've done a few shows on that. But I will say, when Japan came to the West, when Japan, which was the holder of this new paradigm, we thought it was quality, but it really was about continuous improvement. And that meant a much wider definition, if you will, of democracy, of power, the redistribution of power. When that system came, we attempted to imitate the rather stylized, well-bounded system that Japan had fashioned in its post-war economy. But that fashioning had thousands of years of societal preferences built into it. 
preferences that were culturally based in that nation. And it's very hard to differentiate between national preferences and the, a paradigm that grows up within that. And if you want to read more about that, about Japan specifically, I would recommend Ruth Benedict's book, wonderful book I read decades ago and often refer to, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. It was a study that was published in 1946 that Ruth Benedict, who is a, an American anthropologist, was asked by the, at the invitation of the U.S. Um, Office of War Information to write. We wanted to understand and predict the behavior of the Japanese in World War II. And we needed to understand its culture better. And the book was very influential in shaping American ideas about the Japanese culture during the occupation. In fact, it was used in order to organize the plan around uh, the Marshall Plan and the occupation of, of Japan after it abdicated. In fact, that book was so influential in influencing our government to let the emperor stay in place, take away his power, privileges he kept. That was very, very important for Japan to hold together uh, after the war, the devastation of the war that they themselves had declared. So this chrysanthemum and the sword makes a very, um, some say it's out of date and there's a lot of criticism about it as there is in any uh, work of uh, worth. There's a lot of other opinions about it and other documentation. Uh, I, I read a quote that said, uh, um, anthropologists have said, in a sense, all we're doing is writing footnotes to the chrysanthemum and the sword. <laughs> you know, we just keep uh, trying to debunk it or support it or whatever. But it's a good book because it gives you the sense of the cultural construct in which the paradigm that we are that we imported from Japan in the 1980s arrived it is well bounded by these cultural preferences and cultural habits habits of mind if you will and it's so we have to make this differentiation between the continuous improvement these universal principles of continuous improvement the redistribution of power the concept of contribution, inventiveness, and creativity separate from the cultural binding, the cultural book cover, if you will. So let's go into our next break, and uh, we'll continue when you come back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. 
Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. Welcome back to the third segment of our show today. We are contemplating, cogitating over China and the implications of uh, what I saw there for our study, for our usage of the visual workplace. And we are in the arena of culture. But in a sense, it's culture at a distance. The work that Ruth Benedict did in The Chrysanthemum and the Sword and trying to understand the Japanese culture was at a distance. She couldn't visit Japan during the war. She was commissioned, by the way, about 1942-43. She did her cultural study by studying the literature, the news clippings, the films, the recordings, and she interviewed people who were prisoners of war, Japanese-Americans. She made creative use of that. And in a way, that's the way that people find out about China. It certainly is the way they find out about the United States. The United States is Hollywood. How many times have I heard from people one of these two sentences? Gee, you don't seem like an American. Gee, you're not like, the Amer- you're not like Americans. Or, gee, you're so American. They just met me. And yet they're making allegations about who I am and how, and how I am and what I am. <laughs> Where'd they get that from? Well, they got it from culture at a distance. They got to know me through the artifacts of my nation. The books, the films, certainly so influential. The radio, the impressions, the newscasts. Mm-hmm. And our effort is to find that which is different from us. So I found myself in my short visit in China falling into the same bias. I asked myself, how do you engage a passive workforce? Because this is a paternalistic top-down nation. A workforce that doesn't have any experience in empowerment or even participation. I was asking myself the same question. And we met with many companies, 30, 40 companies across our seminars and our visits. And I said, the Chinese are different than we Americans. It won't work. I seem to be surrounded by evidence. I began to build a case, a case that would end in a single conclusion. Let's not bother with China. It's too set in its ways. It's too different. It's too foreign. This is where I found myself going. But there was something else niggling in, at my mind that I had heard those words before. As I mentioned a moment ago, I heard them in the 1980s when Japan came to the United States. When I struggled 
along with many other consultants and educators and change agents and coaches, to get the foreign model, Japan, to fit our domestic mindset. Do you see? Now in my mind, the foreigner is China. How do we get China to accept the American mindset? Struggle, struggle, struggle. And one could easily walk away from a scenario that was framed in that way. And yet, it is so appealing. So appealing. What would it be like to get the rambunctious? This is back in the 1980s when I was struggling using the Japanese model in an American landscape. What would it be like to get the rambunctious, independent, big-mouthed Americans to participate? What would it be like to give them discipline? What would it be like to have that dynamic as part of the growth of a factory where they were making contributions? Well, we did it. We've succeeded. At least we have models. We've got such a long journey ahead of us here in the United States and also in Europe. What, 5%, 6% of the companies are introduced to the idea? Stretch it to 20 Give everybody a break if they've if they bought a book. Stretch it to 30. Stretch it to 50, if you will. No, it's nowhere near 50. Not even by buying books. What is the tipping point? Well, you know, we find it when we get there. The tipping point is when it shifts over into a new mindset, a new habit of mind. We're not there yet in the United States, but why not do China the same way? Through pilots and demonstrations and models. Demonstrations break the mold on a very local level, but these models slowly, gradually build a new myth, a new mindset. We have to break the old one. And the new mindset is about empowerment, the distribution of power. The flavor of this came through to me when I stopped at an electronics plant. They asked me to weigh in on the possibility of their developing an improvement work culture. A wonderful lady, Miss Yall, I called her Grace. I had difficulty with the language, as you can imagine, and Mr. Ray. They took me around, and I found myself stuck with a top-down mindset, seeing passive operators. And then at one point, I stopped as one must and spoke to a few operators. I had just one person near me instead of seven. Just, would you mind, can you just go over there for a moment? I just wanted to talk to this person, and I need an interpreter. Just one person, please. And then we can have a little bit of intimacy, a little bit of one-on-one. And I began to talk to this person. I did not make much eye contact because I wanted to not let the cultural thing become dominant. So I just kind of listened with my eyes down and asked him some questions. Said, what are you doing? What do you think? In order to get a flavor for myself. Because I'm like you. If I don't experience it for myself, it's somebody else's idea. But what's good about me, I've noticed, is that I don't need a whole lot for me to be able to extrapolate or to me to have an impression that begins to change my mind. I've sought to stay open in that way. And I began to talk to this operator, and I began to see an American, an American in the 1980s, or a Brit, or a Mexican. I began to see sameness and not difference. 
the same way that we had done it in the United States when it all began in 1979, 1982. We did it. It's going to be that way in China. China is at the start of this journey, and they will certainly do it. Hmm? And just the other day, I had the same conversation with leadership at this huge paper and pulp conglomerate. They want visuality, no question. They, they wonder how to begin. They want employee involvement. They've got the beginning of that. They've got a great set of values and principles. But they wonder how to get employees to understand visuality as a linking piece, the simplicity of visuality, the power, and they see differences. And I was told, you know, employees in pulp and paper, they're in a very, very, um, let's say, strong work environment, a specialized environment, and they need special information. They need to see examples that are based in their industry. They need to be trained with examples that are in their industry. And I talk about, let's train the principles of thinking. Let's train the building blocks of empowerment and contribution and inventiveness. Oh, no, no, they need to be different. Well, that's not been my experience. I could be wrong, of course. But I find that If you set up the paradigm of thinking, the mindset of thinking, the components of thinking of that intellectual pursuit and you treat people as equals that may be at the beginning of learning what you learned, but they are still your equals. They just need to kind of catch up on the learning. They're not different. The Chinese are not different. People who work in paper and pulp are not different. We are defined by our similarities, our sameness, if you will. I had a similar experience with a good friend, a good friend at a distance in China who runs a factory in Meisu, massive factory. He and I have been talking via Skype for nearly two years. We had a chance to meet in Shanghai. That was a thrill. He just happened to be in town. He was leaving the next day. The very day that I arrived on the plane, he said, you know, I'm... 20 minutes away, can I come over? Let's have a cup of tea. We had some noodle soup together. This man is clever, layers and layers of intelligence and experience, and he gives enthusiastically to whatever the challenge is at hand, and he has been challenged. And he has a construct in his mind of employee engagement and supervisory alignment that has worked in the United States, and he wants it earnestly to work in his plant of 3,000 people, 3,000 people who are Chinese. That includes a kind of fledgling visuality. But he says it's not working. But what is not working? He suspects it's because, and I asked him, why isn't working? He said, you know, my production workforce just left the farm. They're all farmers. They don't get this. They don't get employee involved empowerment. They don't even get repeti- repeated uh, work. But my understanding is a little different now. It is not that they are farmers and they are different than us or different than uh, employees in most factories. We can't make that causative. In my view, it's just not working yet. 
And the reason it's not working yet isn't because people are farmers or recently farmers, nor is it because people are Chinese. It's because of something else. And I'm going to pick up that point after uh, this break, which is happening to us right now. See you in a minute. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, it's Gwendolyn. Hi, we're in the last segment of our show today at the Visual Workplace. And I've got some points that I want to kind of stuff in here so that this rounds out into um, a kind of conclusion, if you will. We were talking just before the break about why isn't it working? This particular plant with my very, very, very smart friend in Mitso, his 3,000-person plant. And I, I land here. It's not working yet. And it's not not working because people used to be farmers last year or the year before that. Nor is it because peop- th- these people are Chinese any more than the slowness and the mistakes and the backsliding, the resistance, the inertial that we, inertia that we experienced here in the United States when the colossal improvement paradigm came from Japan that talked about improvement and empowerment and creativity and contribution and the science of quality any more than we were not able to do it because we were Americans or because we weren't 
Japanese. It took a while. It's the nature of change. We see it and we see it suddenly in a flash. And then we have to put it in place. We see it. My friends in China, Stephen Lee and David Chow, Stephen Lee who fervently believes, no, he knows at the level of knowing that his people need and will respond to empowerment, need and will respond to visuality, can make this happen, can make this jump, but it will take time. He is the very essence of patience. I've seen it. His unflinching belief, knowledge, in his heart and in his mind that this will happen. It's one of the reasons why he contacted me just less than a year ago to say, Stephen, to say, Gwendolyn, China needs this. Can you help me? We've made a very fine match. I don't know if you know this about the Chinese. I've learned it that when, when a, a Chinese person, uh, I think, I don't know if it's with women as well, but with men, when they get a little older, like in their 50s, all of us, our eyebrows begin to grow. We get these long eyebrows. Uh, eyebrow hairs but in China that the the long eyebrow hair is seen as a sign of wisdom and people don't pluck it they let it grow and grow and grow and grow (laughs) I saw um, uh, uh, I went into a temple and there was a picture of um, uh, like a saint not a Buddha but a saint someone who was helping the Buddha and he had these eyebrows that were so long that they curled around their, his ears. He had them wrapped around his ears because they were kind of in his way, in his way of sight. So he put them around, tucked them behind his ears. It's a sign of wisdom. And, and Stephen has this one eyebrow. I wanted to pluck it because that's the way we are in America. And he said, this is my wisdom eyebrow. This is going to help me uh, be patient with visuality. <laughs> we'll see how long it grows. So what he's saying is what I'm saying. There is a sameness in us. It is the sameness that drives our fervor in our lives, not the difference. We have preferences, and many of them are cultural, and we have special gifts, and and they are personal. But underlying them is a universal drive, and that drive is for expression. What I do is me for that I came. Remember my Kingfisher's poem, Kingfishers catch fire as dragonflies draw flame. What I do is me for that I came. This is the irrepressible force that will surface, that is in the process at its very fledgling beginning in China. This is where I'm landing. And you know what's fabulous about it is that the Chinese government gets this as well. I was very lucky on the way home. On my, uh, my, I, I flew in and out of Seattle, flew up from Portland. And on the flight home from Seattle to Portland, I was lucky to sit next to a, a gentleman who, had, who was making his John Lehman. He was on his 64th trip to China, and he was a professor with Alaska University. He, wa- he is a professor of cultural uh, alignment, cultural differences, cultural sameness. And he said, you know, the Chinese government wants what you have. The Chinese government 
I'm sorry, the Communist Party, I should say. The Communist Party has decided that empowerment is an area where it can make contribution. And it wants modalities for encouraging individual expression, empowerment. Remember, empowerment is about the distribution, the redistribution of power. That's what's sexy about it. What's enticing and stimulating, it has to do with individual power within an entrepreneurial framework. People are united in that power. It is the commonality of that power, that will to express, that unites us. What I do is me for that I came. This brings us to the fullness of the theme, which is China is moving in this direction It's figuring out how. It's figuring it out how. In engaging in the global marketplace, these influences are positive and transformative. And even though China is moving from a paternalistic uh, uh, cultural bend over thousands and thousands of years, the emperor and the rest of us, the emperor up there and the rest of us down here, it will find its own formulation of this that will keep the flavor of China just the way the Japanese have kept the flavor of their own nation in their expression of empowerment and we here in the United States in our expression of empowerment. And because visuality is the language of empowerment, it is the language that we own personally through the devices that we create, visuality is also inevitable. Robust, flavorful, delicious, rambunctious visuality. Weird devices that we've never seen before. I can hardly wait to see what our Chinese friends, our powerful Chinese um, workforce will create in terms of visuality. We do have to clear some barriers out of the way and we do have to create models, demonstrations of this great thought. But the great thought is there, it isn't going away. It is a seminal, pivotal thought of the last hundred years. It is what I believe industry is all about. It is about the goods and the things that are made that we buy. But it is also about the changes that that production triggers in us. And as with any journey, we hit some bumps and we go off on the wrong turns. But the journey itself is is what is powering the change. The fact that we move along, move along the path, it powers the change. And that change is in us and that change wants to happen. It wants to happen. It is beyond cultural and national boundaries. It's global. We see it everywhere. The inversion of the pyramid. First, the separation of the executive, if you will, executive, if you will, the top-down pyramid and the empowerment pyramid, the empowerment pyramid that has been held hostage for so long in the power that uh, was formed around uh, command and control. But once the decision is made to release that power, the pyramid that is embedded 
the pyramid of empowerment that is embedded in the command and control because power is a quantum. So there's, it's not that you generate new power. It's that all the power was held within that one construct of the single pyramid. They separate by the, by the decision to do it. So let's make it so. Jean-Luc Picard, China, make it so. That we separate and then we begin. And that beginning point is tricky. The inertia of the past, it's tricky, but we begin to separate and invert the empowerment pyramid until we have this beautiful new alignment. It takes many, many years. And out of that is expressed the symbol of unity, which is the sphere. Mm, very wonderful. I talk about that in my book of um, visual workplace visual thinking. So next week we'll move on to another theme I need to think of what because we're going to get through August and then do leadership in September I think that I'll go into some specific stuff about devices I want to tell you what a great time I had with you today and I look forward to the next time this is Gwendolyn Galsworth and I'm signing off appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening. 